with this memoir. I wanted other people to know that it's okay. It's okay if you've had a really bad run, just keep going and don't give up because you just gotta keep scratching at those corners in the darkness. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. We make e-readers and apps, we sell e-books and audiobooks, and we do it all because we love reading and we love the people who love reading. One of the best parts of the work we do is that we get to talk to authors about their books, as well as the books that shape them as writers and as readers. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is actor and author, Joanne Vanicola. Joanne has been acting since the age of eight, and their screen credits range from Sesame Street through both runs of CBC's Street Legal to the Netflix series Slasher, in which they currently star. In Joanne's memoir, All We Knew But Couldn't Say, they write about growing up in Montreal as the youngest of four children, experiencing abuse at the hands of both of their parents, and eventually moving out at 14 to pursue acting, which comes with its own unique set of traumas for a non-binary person in the 1980s and 90s. It is at times a tough read, made somewhat easier by the knowledge that its author comes out at the end with a kind of rare insight into identity and empathy that allowed them to write this book, which I may add was shortlisted for the Kobo Emerging Writers Prize and has recently come out as an audiobook. Joanne, welcome to Kobo. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I just feel so honored and grateful to be part of the Kobo team and that I was nominated and or shortlisted for the Kobo Emerging Writer Prize and I had the pleasure of recording my audiobook with you. So thank you so much. Aside from our own prize, which yo know, is recognition all its own, how has this book been received? You know, it was my first book, so it was hard for me to know how to gauge what that really was. But I think it's been received really well. I, I mean, it was it was one of the like, top twenty-one memoirs to read, but through you know, according to Bustle, and one of the top forty reads for CBC during the summer, and. I got a lot of press and did a number of festivals and did a small tour. And so I feel like I did as much as I could as, you know, as an well, author. You have, yeah, you have been working hard, you know, to make sure that this book finds its audience. Yeah. And a very different kind of work than the acting that you usually spend your time doing. Absolutely. And, and also trying to reach, you know, people who you may actually need this book or, or find feminist circles or independent bookstores where I think that it might do well or that, you know, find the people who need it most or, you know, hopefully others who, you know, might like to read it. But I did a lot of work trying to get there. And then suddenly COVID hit and I was like, oh, <laughs> halt. <laughs> and as we record this, we are in month nine of the pandemic. How has this time been for you? Uh, I think it's been relatively chaotic <laughs> and then calm, right? Like I feel like I've been through the seven stages of grief. <laughs> so, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty in the beginning and fear. And, you know, when people were getting sick and elderly people were dying and I don't think we understood what we were dealing with. So there was a lot of emotional uncertainty and then I got used to it. And then once I learned enough about the disease and, you know, Canada, you know, kicked in to, you know, helping us ride these times, those of us who needed the, the support, you know, and connecting more with people, oddly, in some ways, because I live alone and I'm, I'm used to being alone and spending time on my own. So that part didn't really impact me in a negative way. However, I felt myself wanting to connect more with people. So it had its 
you know, interesting reverse, I guess. Uh, what's the word? Um, you know the word. <laughs> that word. <laughs> impact. Impact is the word. Yeah. All we knew but couldn't say is your life from early childhood until about 2002 and starts in early childhood. And that childhood looked at from one angle was one that lots of kids and parents dream about. You were a child actor. You were working on screen from the age of eight. You were on Sesame Street. But the other side of that was growing up in an abusive family. Your father was a violent man. You grew up feeling and being unsafe and unprotected. So can you describe your family for me at that time and some of the dynamics within it? Yeah, but I think, you know, my mother, uh, I was her last born child and it came five years after, you know, my, my sister. I came five years after my sister. And I think she was a woman who, you know, who also had been abused, but I think had the culture at the time not been so misogynistic, had she had access to education, access to, you know, funds. And even if she were allowed, allowed legally uh, at the time, she couldn't divorce prior to, you know, the 70s. So I think she was very stuck and damaged. And I don't think she knew how to cope with it. And I, I think she really lost it. And she was quite bright. And I think had she had access to outlets and access to everything that men had at the time, you know, it probably would have been a different uh, trajectory. But, you know, she ended up married to my father, who was a very violent guy and not compassionate, not caring, kind of a little psychopathic, I guess you could say. I mean, I'm not trying to pathologize. I'm not a doctor, but I would say that. So it was very complex to be in a home with two parents who were abusive and tried to survive that as a child. You don't really know that, A, your life is uh, unusual because you don't know how other people live as, a, as children. We don't know what goes on in other homes. And B, you know it's awful, but you don't know that there's any other way to live. And so it's a very complex place when you're five, four, eight years old. So external forces really were my salvation. So being a young actor, being you know a kid in, in the arts and dancing and music and all of those things that filled me up really became an important part of my survival. You had an older brother who was kind of you know, out there doing older brother things and not nearly as much a part of your sibling dynamic. And then two sisters. Can you yes. introduce us to them? Yeah. Well, the firstborn was my sister who, you know, that she was born out of you know, wedlock. They were two young people at the time, my father and my mother, and they got married because that was the thing to do, but way too young to have babies. And it was, you know, I think the chaos and the violence started pretty, pretty much right away with my eldest sister. And then my brother was born and, you know, he had a different experience as a young boy in a sort of Catholic, Italian, Quebecois family. He kind of got a pass. He got a pass in terms of, you know, he didn't experience the child abuse to the extent that the girls did. Doesn't mean that he had a great, perfect life. He, he didn't have any nurturing or he didn't have books read to him either. None of us did. <laughs> so, you know, so there was probably a lot he didn't get in his own upbringing. But in terms of the family dynamic, he got a, a better shot at life, I'd say. Yeah. And then there was the sister who was closest to you in age. Yes, yes. She was almost five years apart, but we were very close 
growing up. We did the best we could in a family of violence and, you know, tried to be friends as we uh, matured and grew up and, and supported each other when we could and how we could. It was very complex though, right? Let's go back to acting for a moment. You describe it as escape, as a bit of a refuge. You know, what else did it mean to you when you were young? It meant many things. It meant relationships with adults and other children that uh, were focused on make-believe and fun. And, you know, that really did fill me up as a young person because I, I understood that even it was, if it was make-believe, the make-believe families and the make-believe stories were so much more supportive and loving and interesting than the one I lived in. So it actually allowed a space of comfort and intellectual, emotional, all of those things, nurturing to kind of seep in, even though it wasn't my direct experience. So I was learning things about human beings through the process of, of make-believe. And it really was a place of salvation, but a place of disconnect too, because it wasn't really my experience, but I was pretending it was because I needed it. <laughs> so that's how I, I dealt with that. And it also was something that got you approval from your mother. Yes. I, my mother was an ultimate stage mother. Her need for my success as, a, as an actor or a dancer or whatever it would have been was important to her, more important than, <laughs> than, than the, the role of the parent or, or you know, my own joy, I suppose, as a kid. And one of the things that I found surprisingly hard considering that there are many things that are hard to read and hard to bear witness to within the book, but was how, you know, your love of theater and dance and performance drove a wedge between you and your sister, who was the, you know, this person who'd been very close to you all the way, you know, kind of through your childhood. And I wasn't sure whether that was something that you were conscious of at the time or looked back later and saw, okay, that there was a cost to that. Yeah, I think I, I understood it at the time. I didn't understand it intellectually. I think I emotionally understood that I was getting more attention, let's say, as a result of my, you know, cuteness as a kid and excelling in dance and theater and all that, and getting attention. Because I was younger too. So, you know, when the younger cute kid in a family gets more attention, I think that's very, very hard, even in a healthy family, uh, because siblings have such... <laughs> Like, you know, hard relationships. They're the hardest relationships I think we have to navigate because, you know, we know each other from, you know, our births to the end of our lives if, if we're lucky to stay connected. And, and there's a lot of, I think, sibling rivalry is a real thing. But when you put that in a toxic sort of violent family, it's crushing. It can be crushing. And I understood it emotionally, but intellectually, as I grew older, I understood how deep that and complex that that wound would be for other siblings who didn't get the kind of attention that I did. But that was, there was a double-edged sword to that because that attention was also incredibly abusive and, and also toxic to me. So, and my sense of self and my own body boundaries. At a certain point, your mother and father separate he continues to come back into the picture from time to time. You know, abuse continues even you know, when yeah. he doesn't live with you. But at a certain point, you start to stand up to him, which feels like one of the, one of the first pivotal moments in the book. What made you stand up? I think because I had seen so much violence to my elder sisters, uh, particularly my eldest sister, I understood in those first nine years, because I kind of stood up to him at the age of nine, that 
I'd had enough and I knew that the system had granted this divorce based on child abuse and that it was because of his violence that my mother was granted or given by the law and the courts this divorce. So I understood those things and I was sick of being bullied by my father, sick of being abused, sick of doing things that were ridiculous, like sweeping a garage. Who sweeps a garage (laughs) or a furnace room at the age of nine? Like my inner voice was like, ah, but I couldn't say that, of course, because I was a child. Excuse me, I shouldn't swear on the podcast. (laughs) So it was just, a you know, after nine years of that, I I think I'd had enough. And I, I think that some children you know, they find that voice at an earlier age and some children find it, you know, at a later age when they're teens or even older. But um, I just think I had reached a point where I was ready to see what might happen by, by speaking back and saying no and standing up to him. And it somehow shrunk that monster in a way. He stopped coming after me. So it was a really amazing moment of understanding about, you know, what it is to stand up for yourself. And even though it's risky, because it was risky as you know when you're a 9 year old and somebody is a big male adult who is used to you're used to being beaten by or terrorized by but you take the risk and i think that's what we do as human beings when we're faced with difficult moments whether you're 9 or 30 we take risks to make things better for ourselves and other people and that's i guess that's part of my part of my training <laughs> as a kid and so i've taken that with me into my adult life well, and it's the first of a number of what I would describe as you know moments of personal fearlessness that show up through this book. Now, some of them hard and maybe even self-destructive, some of them courageous from a career perspective or from a personal perspective, but it was interesting to see it all encapsulated in that moment in a nine-year-old in a garage <laughs> sweeping with a broom against a terrifying figure of a father. You moved to Toronto by yourself at age 14 or 15. Mm-hmm. What led you to leave? Well, it wasn't that I, I made that decision. <laughs> you know, my mother had decided she'd been looking for a school for me to go into an art school for at least a year. I, I'd auditioned for Juilliard in New York and I got really high in that process. I was like top five of, you know, uh, out of three and I nearly was selected and wasn't. And then within a year, or two, Toronto, This it was a high school here, farming arts high school. And my mother one day said, uh, how about Toronto? You know, there's an art school there. I think we should go and I'd like you to go <laughs> kind of thing. And I was like, okay, because I was, I really despised my mother at that point in time in my life as a young teen. And I was very rebellious, very angry. And I had her number and she couldn't get away with things anymore. And I think she knew it. I think she just needed to get rid of me. And so she did. And I left. I was like, okay, fine. Good. I'm gone. And so then you find yourself in Toronto as a teenager living by yourself. Yeah, completely unprepared. I didn't know very many things about self-care. I didn't know how to feed myself. I didn't know how to, you know, I really didn't think about the daily chores of life, even though we had grown up in this crazy home. I just... There were things I just didn't do. I didn't cook. I didn't, I never went to dentists or doctors. And, you know, I was just responsible for everything suddenly. And I was overwhelmed. And in a new city where I didn't really know anyone and I didn't have any family, 
uh, or friends. So it was a very, very difficult transition from being a belligerent teen living at home with a circle of friends in a, in a city like Montreal and then coming to a city like Toronto, which was a very different place to, to be. And suddenly having no social net, no family, no adults, no, no one to go to, to spend time with. It was very, very hard. Through all of this, how had your acting career been progressing? You know, started at eight, you're now 14, 15, 16. So what's happening to your career during this time? You know, the career and the arts were, the, were, I think, still my resting space or my safe space because it still provided joy at those moments. And I knew I have to pursue this because it is the one thing that, that I, I thought I was good at or that I thought it was meant to be. I, I mean, I don't know why I thought those things, but I did. And so I'd been trained to, to believe that. And, and so that's what I pursued. I pursued the arts. I pursued theater and wanted to be an actor. And, you know, even the writing began then, but it wasn't because I thought of being an author. I just, I just wanted to tell stories <laughs> and express myself. Uh, so, you know, at that time I knew I had to get an agent and I tried to pursue, you know, the craft from, a, you know, that in, in a more professional way. So, so I did all those things and uh, then was suddenly in an industry where I'm auditioning for parts and getting parts. And, you know, suddenly I'm a professional and I'm still a young kid who's not prepared to be in the world. <laughs> so I have a very messed up private personal life with a, a young budding career in a in an industry that I wasn't really prepared for either. So very complex. And that section of the book is also this very vivid and painful description of your eating disorder, and especially how body image and the mental processes around anorexia almost became an entire world for you of itself. Mm-hmm. Was it difficult to relive that in the writing of it? You know, the anorexia stuff wasn't so much the diff. I wouldn't say that was the difficult stuff to relive, but it reminded me of my loneliness as a as a child. Like it certainly, it, you know, made me go to that place where I was like, oh, like wow, I can't believe I lived through that. <laughs> like, like because it was so hard, but I hadn't immersed myself in the truth or the rawness of that until I wrote the memoir. I mean, I'd had years and years of therapy and had done all kinds of work, but getting back inside that space was was certainly hard and it wasn't the hardest part but i think it was reliving the loneliness and the sort of the kind of craziness of the mind when you are starving to death at that time you also started writing you wrote your first play around that time what you describe yourself as being drawn to storytelling what were you reading then what were you acting, what were you being exposed to that was helping to push you towards starting to write some of your own work? So I wasn't much of a book reader at all, to be honest. Uh, But I think I was, you know, invested in playwriting and and screenwriting and um, poetry. I loved poetry. And because I had, you know, become a young activist uh, and I was, you know, aware of children's rights and I'd been on a number of protests and marches um, and it, I was in a company that, you know, was invested in speaking out about child uh, rights, not just, you know, in Canada, but globally. And so I understood that I had all these secrets and some of them I barely touched on the surface of my own, you know, memory or or would, wouldn't even get close to. But 
I was able to write about those pieces. So I would write about them in, uh, as a, a young playwright, I would, I would write plays about, about the experience of child abuse. And I did that many times. I had written a number of pieces that were about child abuse. A significant and important part of this book is about gender identity and the evolution of your understanding of your identity <laughs> throughout this book. Can you describe that process of understanding and how that evolved over the course of the time of your life that's captured in this book? Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult because as a young professional in the film industry, for example, there were no women like me. There were no people who, I mean, we didn't have the word non-binary, let alone lesbian, which nobody, nobody ever said the word lesbian. And maybe people would say the word gay, but there weren't any lesbians in the film and television industry to, to look up to. There weren't, you know, women didn't have short cropped hair. Women didn't wear pants and, uh, you know, jackets. I mean, that was just, I put up with so much misogyny and homophobia by the entire industry from friends to casting agents, to agents, to producers and directors and screenwriters. It was an endless barrage of misogynistic and homophobic experiences from, from those individuals. But through that process, I was still that little nine-year-old, you know, standing up to my father. I was like, no, this, excuse me, I did it again. Uh, <laughs> I swore Just again. Keep it in mind. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that internal scrappy person in me wasn't willing to hide my identity, even though I knew it would hurt. I didn't know what that would look like, how hard you know, it would be, because I might have made different choices if I had known how hard the struggle would be. But I think that's the thing about standing up and, and, and being an advocate or an activist is that you learn the hard way. And I learned really hard, but I still had to choose myself over the industry. I still had to choose my soul. And that's the way I would, would look at it. And it made my life very, very, very difficult. But that's where book reading started to come in for me, where poets like Audre Lorde or, or Pat Parker, um, Sylvia Plath even, you know, and then I started to learn about civil rights and what were the words of those, you know, those people. And, and so I started to infuse the advocacy and the, and, the, and, and the important part of my humanity that inspired me to continue on my journey around, I guess, um, building my own strength around identity about, about who I am as a, as a queer person and how I identify. And I didn't want other people telling me what I could and couldn't do because of who I am. Like, why is that okay? It's not okay, but still it is, it is what happens culturally still. People who aren't in the industry sometimes think that creative industries are more welcoming or more accepting in regards to gender. But your story tells us just how much that is not the case, especially for transgender or non-binary right. people, but even just for people who don't want to play to the most exaggerated of gender stereotypes. And standing up to that, as you say, has been a series of often difficult choices for you. With that in mind, can you take me through your experience of moving out to L.A.? Yeah, I mean, I didn't stay in LA very long. I was there for a number of months. Yeah, I but... could have said moving out to LA and then moving out of LA. <laughs> yes, correct. Right. You know, that was also very complex because if I thought Canada was a difficult, hard place to be as an actor, <laughs> LA was like ridiculously insane. I mean, 
And you're rolling in right off of an, an Emmy, like your, you know, yes. your career's on this trajectory where the thing that you do as a young actor is now you go to LA. Correct. But I was like, I rushed into a brick wall the minute I got there because I just, every horrible thing that I hated about the industry here was magnified there. And people were fabulous. So they were very excited. And that's the one thing we don't have here. Like, yes, it's great to meet you. And you've got like a million auditions every day. And there's a lot of energy and attention. And I mean, it's Hollywood. I mean, it's it's full on 100%, but also full on 100% cisgendered, heterosexual, white to the extreme. And I run up against it and people expected me to stay in the closet, to femme up, to put on more makeup. And I just, I hit the wall. I was, I immediately crashed. I got super depressed and I had to run away. <laughs> so I hopped in a car and went off to San Francisco, cut my hair and lost my mind a little bit. But then maybe, maybe I found it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure how you look at that, right? Except for that it was a, a reaffirming of my internal you know, desire not to be objectified and um, not to be closeted, not to be treated so horribly. I, I wouldn't do it. And again, it was a cost. It was the cost of my career, cost of my livelihood. And, and I knew it, but I just couldn't, I just couldn't swallow all of that crap that I was expected to. And it feels so fortunate in the book that the ricochet that you, you know, that you land with off of that is partnering up with Denis Arcan. And if there's a good Canadian cinema experience, <laughs> that's, a, yeah. you know, that's not a bad one. No, I mean, Denis was and is still to this day so supportive, so loving, so kind, so gracious. He's not, he's so giving to, like he just doesn't, he's one of those people that wants you to do well, that wants you to succeed, that will listen, that's intellectual, that's uh, invested in, in art, uh, regardless of, you know, whatever backlash comes and by, by telling the stories that you want to tell. I so admire that man. And I'm so uh, uh, thankful to him for picking me for those parts, even though I was a belligerent. Well, yeah, your first meeting with him was a little bit rocky. <laughs> it was very rocky because I had just, you know, dealt with so much misogyny and homophobia. And I just come, you know, I couldn't get it out of my head. It was like so overpowering every part of my being was like ready to blow up. And here's this man who's very suave and gentle and agile. I want to meet with you. And I'm like, wow, I'm never going to do this. I'm not going to take my clothes off. Why are men like you? Blah, 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 blah. So the poor guy. And I mean, I don't know why he chose me, but he did, even though, even though I couldn't stop my bad mouth from running off. So dream with me for a minute. Yeah. If you could change one thing, one characteristic about you know, the industry that you've devoted your life to, wave a wand, what's the barrier you would knock down or what's the structure that you would change? Wow. One thing? That's rough. You Does it only one. have to be one? Pick one. Pick one. I, I think I'm ready for uh, LGBTQ2 uh, S plus people to have a rightful space in the industry to write our stories, to have not just 1% of the stories, not just, you know, tokenism, but to have many LGBTQ stories, to have writers and screenwriters and directors and, and organizations and companies and even at more networks. I mean, I think we do need not just queer, really, but I, I think an intersectional approach to storytelling that crosses genres and, and uh, mediums. Um, 
but certainly I feel like we're, we're only at the beginning of telling LGBTQ stories. And I feel like there's a lot of, we have a lot of work to do there. And, and that would be where my wand is for people like me or non-binary or people who are trans, you know, people who are black, trans, indigenous. I mean, like there's so many stories and they're barely told. I mean, we've hardly told any of these stories. And so there's this massive amount that we bring to, that we could bring to the culture, if only, if only, right? Like we could just crack that ridiculousness and stop this homophobic, misogynistic, uh, cis normative industry from dominating. It makes you so conscious of the size of the funnel through which everything has to squeeze and the, you know, the relatively small number of stories from the relatively small number of perspectives that actually make it out onto the other side. And then there's all of this richness that, you know, is backed up behind it. It's just fighting, you know, like hell to get out. Yes. And so you've done some work within ACTRA (laughs) and is that mostly been in the organizing and activism of actors or are you also trying to kind of you know, grease the skids to get more of those stories out there into the world? I think it's both, right? Like, mm-hmm. I feel like the actor, I mean, actors are kind of at the bottom of the, the power, you know, dynamic when we, we talk about, you know, the film industry. So I, I feel what I'm trying to do inside of Actra is, is to help queer actors understand that it's okay to come out. It's okay to, you know, want to tell our stories. It's okay to, you know, all of those, but it's not okay if the people at the top of the industry are not invested in us telling our stories and hiring us to tell our own stories. And so it's not enough just to do the work inside of the union for actors. I feel like the work has to be done outside of the, of, of the union. And so that's where I'd like to focus some of my attention moving forward is how do we build a larger, you know, just I was, as I was saying before, how do we build a larger network where LGBTQ stories, like women in film or BIPOC people in film, like this is what we need to do for LGBTQ people as well so that we really crack this open and, and change change the dynamics so that, so that, you know, our stories are front and center and told by us, written by us, performed by us and produced by us and our allies. So speaking of stories, what made you decide that you needed to write this book now to tell your own story this way? I wanted people to understand what it felt like from the inside, not just as a kid who, who grew up with violence in a home. And that's certainly one thread, but the thread of what it is to be non-binary, what it is to be queer in this culture. And, you know, try as hard as we do to make it, to be successful, to do everything we can in our own individual power to get there. There are forces bigger than us that will try to squish us. And I think that was the recurring lesson of my life. And it started in childhood with my parents, who no matter how much I tried to succeed, whether they wanted it or not, they would, they would squish me. You know, and so when I got out of the grip of them, you know, I ended up in an industry that was trying to squish me. And I did not want my story to end tragically. <laughs> I needed to take control. I needed to write my story and to let other people know that, it, you know, it's okay. If you have these experiences, know that it's okay, that there is something we can do about this, that you know, what is success? Uh, I'm not sure entirely, but, you know, if success is, you know, is, is surviving all of that and then contributing to the culture, try and make it a better place and being able to produce works that 
impact and affect people's lives. And that to me is really what mattered. And so with this memoir, I wanted other people to know that it's okay. It's okay if you've had a really bad run, just keep going and don't give up because you just got to keep scratching at those, those corners in the darkness and, and really the light will come through eventually. And maybe you're going to be the one that creates it. And if you do, you know, you know, the rewards will be great. And were there any books that you looked at as you were starting to write your own or any stories mm-hmm. that you saw or heard that made you go, okay, there's a, there's a particular way that I want to put this down on paper. There wasn't one book alone, but, you know, I remembered, for example, I didn't read the book, but I I watched the film uh, Precious, which was based on the book Push. And that really, that really did me in because I could relate to that character and that character's mom. But then there was The Glass Castle uh, by Jeanette Walls, which I thought was an amazing memoir. And, you know, and then I think the activism, the work of the women that I admired, exactly like Audre Lorde or or, um, Adrienne Rich or you know, and, and the leaders that we, we've admired, that we know about from civil rights or women's, women's movement. I mean, all of those people sort of were in my head, actually, as characters or friends. And I just thought I have to find a way to, in, to tell my story that I haven't really read many memoirs like mine. And so I know it's kind of out there. And, but it took me a while to write it. It took me many years to figure out the structure and how I wanted to tell it and that it was a whole journey of a whole from beginning until, you know, the, the, that year, 2002. So it took time, but all of those pieces and all of those writers and all of those um, voices were, were sort of with me as I wrote. Some memoirs are cathartic. They're about getting events down on the page and out of your system some are with the goal of sharing experiences to help others or to illuminate issues. Was that all tied up in this or was there one particular objective that you were really hoping for as you, you know, as you pushed through this work? I think it was a multiple, uh, there were multiple reasons for, for, for writing it. And I think cathartic, maybe in the early stages of writing, but I had started writing, you know, short stories about this years and years ago, and I didn't really know where I was going with it. And then by the time I started to really write, write, and made the conscious decision to write this memoir, I knew it would be not just to tell my story, but in the hopes of telling the story that I, I was certain that there were other people in the queer community, people who had experienced child abuse, people who were, you know, female and, and coping with, you know, uh, assault, sexual violence, domestic violence, I mean, all of these issues, as well as being an artist in an industry that, quite frankly, isn't very kind to women or queers or, or black people or, you know, and I think it crossover into even the book field. Like, I mean, we're not, I mean, there are certainly similarities, I think, but it was really important to touch all of those areas. And so I, I don't know if I answered that question, except for that, oh. all of it, all of it mattered. I have a new theory as we've been doing a few memoirs over the course of this season, Mm -hmm. which is that at best, catharsis may get you through the first draft, but it's actually too much work. (laughs) It it can't power you through the whole thing. (laughs) So you have to have some other reason to want to get it out on page because like after you, you you kind of (laughs) hurl it all out of yourself. It's like, well, now we're going to rewrite it four more times. Absolutely. I was so sick of my own story by the end of this. I was like, oh my God, do I have to go back to that hanging on the bridge scene once more? Or <laughs> but I do think because I'm an advocate and an activist that 
you know, that part of that inspiration is really deep for me. And it always does push me. And honestly, recently, when, when and I know it's a complete different thing entirely, but when you think of somebody like Joe Biden, who was like, you know, he lost his family, he lost his kids, he lost his wife. And, you know, his thing was, we've got to find a purpose. And I always said that to myself, oddly, as a young person, because I was a depressed young person. I was like, I have to keep my purpose because my purpose is the thing that will continue to keep me going. And I think that's what I do with writing. Um, It's part of my purpose. And whether or not I'm good at it is really not the point. (laughs) I mean, I hope I get better at it. It's the goal. But it is is my purpose is to share these stories and, and to reach people who need them. And to illuminate, uh, you know, and educate, I guess, along the way, even though that's not the primary goal, but it's certainly part of it. You now have this fairly wide palette of expression to work from. Mm -hmm. So where is that purpose manifesting itself next between acting and writing and movies and television and all of the other things that you can do? I'm a bit, what's the word? Uh... I kind of like, I'm like a kid in the jar. I want everything. I want to try everything. So it's, like, it's hard to, I don't know if, you, if you're like that at all yourself, but yeah. So it's like, I've, I've got these picture books for kids that I want to write. So I've been writing those and send, I've been sending a couple of those out and I've just written a short screenplay and I'm going to act in it. And, uh, you know, uh, Kate Johnson's going to direct and we've got some queer crew lined up. I'm going to shoot that in March. And uh, I'm going to start an Indiegogo campaign for that uh, shortly in the next couple of weeks. I'm working on a YA and, I, and part of me would also like to go to the film center. So like I have all these, I just can't stop. It's just like I've lost my mind almost. And uh, I'm like, a, like I'm on, I've got four hamster wheels and I'm, I'm running on all of them because they all matter to me. And I think ultimately it's about storytelling. Again, I go back to that. It's about telling your stories and using every medium you can to tell those stories. And don't be afraid to try any medium that you want to try because that's, we're alive, right? So if you if you have a goal, you have a dream, you want to try something, go for it, do it. Just keep those hamsters spinning. <laughs> yeah. So I'm spinning like a mad person during COVID in my apartment. Please stop me. <laughs> Please stop me. <laughs> Help me. No. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Joanne, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you, Michael. <laughs> I really appreciate you. And I really appreciate everything that's happened with Kobo. You guys have been fantastic with me in my memoir. So thank you so much. It's easy to be fantastic when you have, you have good material to work with. I have been speaking with Joanne Venicola. Joanne's latest book is All We Knew But Couldn't Say. It and the other books we've mentioned here, along with previous episodes of the show, can be found at kobo.com slash conversation along with our archive of other excellent interviews with remarkable authors. Make sure to catch every conversation by subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen, and leave us a review because it helps other readers find us. Kobo in Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj, edited by Kelly Robotham, and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.